This episode is The Consumer Data Right with Jamie Leach. Hi, this is Brett Farrell. Thanks for joining the Westbrite Lawcast. We are all about digital media and technology law, which moves faster than we can get podcasts out. So know that when an episode drops, something interesting has happened in digital media and technology law. Subscribe and each episode will find its way to you. I'm talking with Jamie Leach about the consumer data right. Jamie is the regional director of FData in Australasia and the founder and CEO of Open Data Australia. We focus on where things are today and new developments that expand the CDR into the energy and telecommunications sectors. We also talk about open finance and privacy's role in the consumer data right. If you want to talk about what any of this means for your business, get in touch with Jamie or me, Brett, at Westbright Law. This podcast is best enjoyed with a coffee or whatever your choice. So Jamie Leach, Regional Director of FData Australasia and CEO and founder of Open Data Australia, thank you for joining the Westbright Lawcast this morning to talk about CDR. Thank you very much for having me, Brett. Now, it's our pleasure. And with so much going on in CDR over the last few years, and I guess even over the last few weeks, tell us, CDR in a nutshell, what is it and who does it apply to in Australia? Wow, nothing like the uh, the big question up front, Brett. <laughs> Um, Look, CDR stands for the Consumer Data Right, but what is it? Essentially, if you look around the world, we have a number of countries, I think the UK is the the biggest and the brightest of them all, that decided to mandate the sharing of data, in this case, banking data, that specifically transactional payment data. So the government said, all right, customers have a right to access their data they have a right to direct where that data is sent and for what purpose, hence how we get to open data or open banking. Now, the Australian government was a little bit different. It considered whether open banking would would suit this country and decided why settle for one sector when they could envisage a wider remit of multiple different use cases, such as banking, energy, telecommunications, and the list goes on. So in Australia, for large-scale provisions to be changed, our legislation needed to be amended. And that's why we took the legislative path of creating a consumer data right. Think of it as a digital power of attorney. So starting with banking in this country, the government has drawn up a list of rules and said who can play and who can't play and what data must be shared if a customer asks for that data to be shared. In a nutshell, that's what the consumer data right is and how it just differs slightly from some of the other regimes such as the United Kingdom. So is it fair to say in this market that uh, it's driven more by a, a, a competition criteria to stimulate the market, stimulate services for consumers, rather than the government just had a data fetish? Look, I think you've touched upon a couple of really important parts. Um, Competition very much was at the heart of the original review into whether Australia should travel down that open banking and open data path. They saw it as an opportunity, or the government saw it as an opportunity to um, force increased competition on on the big banks in particular. They thought they had too much of the market share, not enough competition from smaller banks and new entrants. But innovation was equally important to the Australian government. They wanted to see a way of increasing, um, I guess, technology, 
digital solutions, fintech as we often call it. So these can be uh, customer facing apps that you might have on your smart devices. It could also be some of those really amazing financial technical middle companies that are providing business to business services. Right, but as, so with that in mind, and, and where are we today? How is it evolving? Does it, are people using it? What's the market looking like today as we sit here? It's an interesting uh, concept that if you build it, they will come. But I think we're a little bit unrealistic or, or the market has been quick to condemn the fact that they haven't quite come yet. So if you think of the field of dreams, the baseball uh, arena, the, the field's been created pretty much, probably 95% there, but we're yet to see the players come in yet. And there's a number of reasons for that. We're getting the participants in line. So we have nearly all of the banks that were mandated to share the data are now in some way um, at least connected and they're getting there. A number of them are active, but there's still some that are ironing out the wrinkles of the technology rails. We're getting more and more recipients. So these will be the fintechs or the businesses that will actually receive the data from the banks. And they may be the applications that I spoke of on the smart devices. We've got a number of what we call as intermediaries. So these are the companies in the middle, the B2B solutions that will help facilitate that uh, movement of data. But what we're not seeing at the moment is customers actually using it. And there's a number of reasons. We don't have a lot of accredited apps as yet. They're coming. What we've seen is, as expected, we've got the banks have fallen into line, the middle companies, the intermediaries are starting to fall into line. Now we will start to see the customer-facing solutions come onto the market. But it took the UK more than three years to get 3% of their market actually using open banking. And now that is growing you know, at a, at a rate. We're not three years in yet. It's going to take time to really see that uptake. Haven't experienced it yet. We still believe it will come. But who's most excited in the sector, whether it's you know all these players, whether the consumers, the banks, the fintechs, who's really excited for this? Who really sees the opportunity? I think it's split. It's split breath between the companies that are now seeing um, an innovative use, so they're being stood up or they're being morphed from their traditional operations to take advantage of open banking, this promise of real-time services to customers, the, the powering that insights and some of the nuances of open banking will allow them to do through their technology fronts. But equally, we're now starting to see the traditional banks that have been dragged to the line, made to export their data. Um, that's taken a lot of investment, a lot of time. But now they're starting to switch their strategy to say, we're going to become recipients as well. And we're going to do that for two reasons. One, we want to enhance the, you know, the customer experience. But two, we want to strengthen our internal processes. And having that golden record or the single source data coming through will actually start to streamline some of those internal processes. So I think it's split between companies receiving the data and some of the traditional companies able to create greater efficiencies internally. Right. And and late last year or mid last year, the government introduced well made some changes to the rules and introduced two new pathways, I guess, to, to get into the data, uh, into the CDR market. And you've got this idea of sponsorship 
and a representative pathway. Now, would you be able to explain just the differences between the sponsorship pathway and the representative pathway, but also maybe why you think the government saw fit to introduce these to introduce these new regimes? I might take the second question first and then we'll flip it around. So the government had always intended to include tiered accreditation as a way to, I guess, reduce or lower some of the barriers to entry. To become a participant in Australia, it is significantly um, more costly and labour intensive than some of the other regimes, such as the UK. And this is for a number of reasons. Um, it's you know, the assurance checks, it's the insurances, it's the getting all the internal controls and the infosec um, levels up to scale. It just, it's, it's costing on average anywhere up to four times more to get a ticket to play than some of the other regimes. Now, the Australian government has been very rigid in these controls and these requirements because they see protecting consumers' data as being at the absolute utmost um, risk control that they, they need to be across. So they've, they've been unapologetic in saying this is the requirements if you want to play. What they've done, though, is they've really, in version three of the rules, elaborated on what those tiered accreditation models may look like. And there's there's three if we consider it. One is the outsourced service provider. I know that's not the main question. It's, it's not the sexy one because outsourced service provisions always existed in financial services. It always will. That model has just had clarity put around, do they need to become accredited? Who shares the liability? All of that. It's, it's pretty much unscathed. The two that are new, I guess, to the Australian regime are the, the sponsors affiliate model and the CDR representative model. There's subtle nuances and subtle differences between the two. So if we start with the sponsors affiliate model, it's almost similar to the sponsors agent model that we're seeing in the United Kingdom. So your sponsor is what we consider to be call it the big fish. This is your unrestricted accredited data recipient in the Australian market. And as such, they've fulfilled all the requirements um, to receive data from anybody with consumer consent. You know, they, they, they can do whatever they want, pursuant to the rules, of course. But they decide they're going to sponsor what we're going to call the little fish. It might be a early stage fintech. It might be an entry to the country that doesn't have a lot of boots on the ground and a big war chest of funds. For whatever reason, this organisation has chosen to shelter almost under the umbrella of a sponsor. Now, what that means is they don't need to go through the full accreditation and all of the expenses, they do still need to have a lot of the checks and balances in place. So they need to have their infosec environment sorted. They need to have all of the different um, controls and systems, clear lineage of, of management, all of the rest of it. But what they do is instead of applying for full accreditation, they actually do an assessment and an attestation, if you like, to the ACCC and an assurance that they meet all of the compliance. But the biggest issue is they can't collect data. Right. The sponsor collects the data on their behalf. So when that little app on the smart device, um, maybe it's a budgeting app. I say budgeting because it's the easiest one for everyone to understand why you would want to have a you know, banking data going to an app on your phone. Yeah. That app might be ABC budgeting app. 
But when you read the fine print and when you actually give consent for the data to be collected, it's going to show the sponsor's name and it's going to show that XYZ is actually the one collecting the data from the bank or, or requesting the data and it will then share it with ABC budgeting for the service or the product that the, the customer has actually signed on for. So at the end of the day, the customer's probably not going to care. They're probably going to download an app because a friend or a colleague or a family member said, yep, this is great, or they've seen it recommended in an app store or advertising. The customer we're anticipating isn't really going to care who's collecting the data. They do need to be informed. They are still going to need to give the full consent, but this just becomes a legal matter of licensing, if you like, between the sponsor and the affiliate. Yeah. And as such, the interesting thing is the sponsor is essentially assuming almost liability by saying, I'm going to make sure that I am checking that the affiliate has got all their, their bells and whistles all sorted, all their ducks in a row. But if there is a breach of data, both the sponsor and the affiliate may be pursuant to civil proceedings as well. So it's important to think you can't discharge your liabilities just because it wasn't me, it was the little fish that made the, the mistake. Now, if you go to the CDR representative model, this one has raised a few eyebrows because there's even less checks and balances in place. Essentially, a representative, a CDR representative becomes an agent of an unrestricted data recipient, whereby the unrestricted data recipient, the the big fish, as we were saying, is now fully liable, uh, fully liable for anything that the representative does. And in addition, the representative does not need to actually have any assurances or any audits or anything along those lines. It's an attestation to say that we meet all the requirements. And the CDR representative, the big fish, is actually once again they're going to try to protect themselves by saying, well, we have a contract in place. This company has given me assurances that they're meeting all of those minimum requirements, even though they don't need to prove it in a piece of paper. They're going to prove to us maybe we've got those internal regular checks, internal audits, whatever that looks like. But once again, um, to the customer, they're going to see an app. They're going to give consent for that app to do whatever the product or service is that they think they're going to receive. And a lot of this tiered accreditation model is going to be totally outside of their their field of, you know. Yeah, I, I can see how I can see how those might have a place to to help this sector grow. Because you know, when big fish deal with the little fish, there's always that mismatch in it's certainly in security controls and security maturity. Uh, and sometimes the bigger fish are, are happy to help the smaller fish grow and, and mature in their cybersecurity posture and how they protect data. So I can see how that would solve for that problem of aligning sort of the bigger end of town to the smaller end of town. But that's the theory. So what are you seeing already, or is it too soon to tell, actually taking place in the market? Are people embracing these two new pathways? It's, it's a very good question, Brett, because I guess the, the unspoken part of this is for anybody to sponsor an organisation or become a principal to a, in a CDR representative um, arrangement, there's obviously going to be a monetary factor. 
So if you are going to lend somebody your umbrella or say, I'm going to help you have your controls in place or I'm going to provide you the structure and the rigor of best practice to help you as you grow on your journey, there's obviously going to be a fee for that. So what we are seeing is a number of, I guess what we'd class as intermediaries that are posturing in the market a little bit at the moment to provide their services of of being the the big fish right for for a fee now that's a natural part of any ecosystem settling into the roles there's a very valid reason why some of these smaller businesses may not want to have to build out different capacities they're happy to come up under a bigger organization you know We've got members that are looking at doing it for maybe the first couple of years until they really start to see revenue coming in. And at that point, they may consider applying for a fully unrestricted accreditation and stepping out from underneath those intermediaries. To come back to your earlier point about growth, uh, it looks like they are preparing for growth and and even more so with the ambitions to move into other sectors. So where are we at the moment with telco and energy? I know there's been some news. There has actually. Um, we were holding a member call at the start of this week with uh, the minister, Minister Hume, actually on it, and she's dropped those two announcements. And uh, watching the faces of our membership, one was um, really pleased, the other was shocked, both in a good way, I must say. Um, so, look, energy, energy is the next cap off the rank. We know that um, the deadline's been set at the start of November for this year. Energy data is is intended to start flowing. I say intended because we did see several pushbacks and time shifts with banking as it came online. Some of that was due to changes of the rules, but some of it was through um, the intended data sharers not being ready. Um, So I am going to be reticent to say data will definitely be flowing by the start of November. We're we're quietly hopeful, Um, but energy, very similar to banking, version four of the rules when they came through were literally the banking rules with specific nuances um, relating to energy written in. Telco is now going to be the next cab off the rank and the intention was always every 12 months for the next lot of data to come online. So if we take that same time frame, we're probably looking November 2023 is when Telco will come online. But the other announcement was open finance this week. And open finance is just a behemoth. We're not looking at one sector. We're now going to be looking at general insurances and superannuation or pensions as we see it in other countries, potentially non-bank lending and wealth management, investments. Like There's going to be what anybody would consider four, five, six different verticals that are all going to have to come online. And they're not all going to come online on the same date. There is no way they could do that. But whether that's 2024, 2025, they're going to be doing a lot of work over the next two years to try to get those timeframes, you know, set in stone. Yeah, I'd be interested to see over the next few years what kind of offerings end up in the consumer's hand because open finance, uh, 
you know, it touches every aspect of our lives in one way or another. And it'd be great to see some really smart, innovative people look for ways and solutions for consumers to really make a difference to their lives, whether it's cost, value, product, benefit. Because I think uh, a number of businesses in Australia have been, has been, have been grasping at different parts of that over the last five years. So now maybe with the data and the openness and the flowing, maybe that really will see some innovation take place. What are your reflections on, on what that might look like? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's two elephants in the room, one more obvious than the other. So the first is the future directions. And this is where we move into right access or action initiation and payments initiation, as it's being called in Australia, because Australia just likes to do things subtly different to, uh, <laughs> to all the other regimes. Um, what this will literally mean is it's one thing to say, I want to get the data out of the banks into an app. It's another thing to say to the, the app, right, you're going to show me the comparisons of all of these different bank accounts. I like the comparisons. I like your recommendation. I'm going to click a button and you're going to now go off and make it happen. So you're going to show me the best uh, mortgage rates based on my situation. I'm going to tick a box and say, yep, I'm happy with that. You're now going to formally apply for it for me, switch it from another provider, and it's all going to be settled in a matter of days. And all I'm going to have to do is tick a couple of boxes on a smart device. Ah, wishing. If wishing could make it so, that sounds I ideal. I know. I'm, but this is where we're going to start to see that truly revolutionary experience start to get passed down to the consumers. There's a number of steps that need to happen between now and then, because at the moment we can just share the data and that's coming online now. And that in itself is going to power more comparison, more visibility, more personal finance management, where you can get a holistic approach of your, your finances, all of that sort of thing. But the ability to then take action off the back of that is where it gets really, really exciting. So the Future Directions um, Review and Report commissioned by Scott Farrell, the architect of open banking in Australia, has largely been um, accepted or in some way collaborated or corroborated, sorry, by the government or by the Treasury Department. That's now going to go through formal consultation and sectoral designation to work out when. There is no roadmap at the moment. The other elephant that I spoke of is the merging of public and private data starting to come in. And that was an announcement that was made on Monday as well. So we're going to start to see elements of public sector or government data start to be shared back with consumers for specific use cases. So imagine, Imagine a parent is going to enrol a child in a private school. So previously, they'd contact the private school. The private school would say, great, can you get me the education records? I need to see um, information about the child, the parent. I'm going to need to assess your serviceability. Can you even afford us? All the rest of it. This now moves to a single app. I want to enrol my child. I give consent for you to access my bank and check my serviceability. I give you access to go to the education department and, and get copies of my child's education records. I give consent that uh, if accepted, I'll make regular payments. And here's my bank account details to take all of those fees and excursions out of. I'm sure that would make life easy for many parents. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But that's just an example of if yeah. you don't have the public sector data coming through, 
you can solve for some of the issues, but we can start to get that true open data sharing regime, which is also of importance to the Australian government as they move towards their digital economy. It's a whole of life experience. And, and with that, what consumers in their whole of life, I've noticed over the last few years are becoming really aware of, is the fact that organisations are using their data. And there's various levels of comfort and, you know, trust or distrust with that, depending on the organisation. Has the CDR moved any consumer sentiment around trust or data or privacy? I think it's too early to tell quite yet. Um, I've published a couple of pieces where I'm questioning the market, both my contacts of banking and, and elsewhere. How does one explain open banking to their, you know, to their neighbours? And I likened it to if you're standing at a barbecue with your neighbours cooking the chop and you're trying to explain what open banking is, the eyes just glaze over, the confused looks. Generally, they don't care. What they care about is that experience that they're getting on the app. What they care about is being able to consent to share their data. And what they're hoping is an element of trust that it is going to be secure, it's not going to get hacked easily, and that this is um, an approved and really carefully crafted solution. They don't care how the data gets from the bank to the app. They just want to know, once I give that tick of consent on that screen, and I liken it to the Australian maid, the little green and gold kangaroo, that if you went shopping back when I was growing up and you saw that, you knew it was made in Australia, that trademark was, was you know, burnt into your psyche. This is what the CDR brand will start to do to people as they use apps and as they start to engage in um, services. The Treasury Department has been, and the ACCC have been very quick to think that CX experience through of that trademark and try to create that trust environment. But just on that, let's just turn to consent for a moment, because a lot of privacy research at the moment is showing that consumers are getting consent fatigue. Uh, there's so many various requests for consent and tick this box and move on, um, that consumers also get worried about what it is they're consenting to. So let's use your private school example for the moment, because the, the ease of that makes sense. But on one of the tick boxes would be, can you, yeah, I consent to you looking at my bank account to, to see if you can service the loan. Used to be maybe, maybe you would have had just to provide a la last couple of pay slips to show you had the, mo the money. But how do I know what data that the school might be troving through, you know, to see whether I, first of all, how much I get paid to afford the fees versus what maybe I'm spending my money on? Absolutely. That is, that's a fantastic question. So when you give consent, that consent has to be specific and it has to be for a time frame. Um, and it's got to be considered reasonable for the product or service that's actually being fulfilled. So... For instance, you used to have to give a statement or two statements. It used to have to cover six months when you'd apply for a mortgage. They'd want to see two statements with regular income, regular expenses, and then they'd generally annualise it and get a picture of, you know, could you afford the, the mortgage? What would be deemed reasonable would be the, for the bank to actually request a similar time frame of data. Certainly, it wouldn't be considered reasonable to say, I'm going to trawl through the last five years of sensitive information just to ascertain whether they can afford to send little Sally to school 
you know, for the next two years. When they give consent, it has to be informed and it needs to be expressed. So those particulars, I'm giving one-off consent for 24 hours for you to provide a serviceability assessment on my bank data. What would be considered reasonable would be to access only the transaction accounts that the customer has given consent to, because they can select which accounts the bank actually reaches into or the school reaches into. And they can also um, start to look at, they can withdraw, they can amend that consent. So to your point about consent fatigue, Consent requirements just going to continue and it's probably going to end up being even more specific and even more, you know, um, reading the fine print is going to become even more important. But in saying that, consumers are going to have to take responsibility over their data, which, as we see now, every time the cookies little consent comes up and the first box you tick is accept all, how many people just hit accept all to get that pop-up off their screen in order to keep reading from the website. I agree. I, I think most people do. But isn't that to say that there's a role for the organisation collecting the data to perhaps take a data minimalist and perhaps privacy by default position uh, responsible on them? And I know that's, I guess that's, in some respects, it's the law uh, in some parts of the world. And it's also aspirational uh, for many regulators. So how would that play out here? Because the CDR has some very, very prescriptive rules around this compared to the more principles-based privacy legislation. So how, how do those two things sit side by side? They haven't settled in nicely side by side to date. And the market has been quite critical of the fact that it feels like the CDR has almost been over prescriptive, overcomplicated in the lack of a robust privacy safeguard or privacy framework. Now, it's easy to be critical when you're looking across to the other side of the world, seeing a GDPR that seems to be all-encompassing and solving everyone's data breach and data privacy issues. Um, they're very heavy-handed on the fines that are being, you know, handed out to, to big and small organisations. But it's certainly not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But if we look at Brazil, for instance, they have created their own version of the GDPR in the LDPR, and they don't get incredibly prescriptive on privacy or consent because they just refer in their open banking or open finance to must abide by the LDPR and everything you do. So in Australia, we've got the Privacy Act that's going through a five-year review and is a bit of a moving feast. We've got a lot of talk about consent and liability models. We have a lot of talk about infosec requirements and data minimal minimalization and data deletion and you know the data 61 framework or CSIRO's framework around data governance and procedures. But at the end of the day, what does that mean for the consumer? they're going to get a minimal consent screen that's going to say you're going to give consent for this purpose from this organisation. And then there's going to be, if you want to know more, click here. And that's where the proverbial drop-down box will come with all of the fine print. And that fine print's been likened to every time you used to fill out a piece of paper at a bank and you'd be asked to sign, 
and all the font would be, I swear it was size seven or eight, and it just went on forever. Your data will be shared with blah, 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 who may be onshore or offshore or this or that for this purpose. And I don't know anybody who ever took the time to read it. What this should do is introduce plain language, minimalist language, simplified, standardised, so at least the consumer has a chance of gleaning what they're actually agreeing to before they tick that button. Yeah, and, and to be a bit self-serving, when, when, you, when you are moving into this space, you are literally moving into a highly regulated and controlled environment. It's not for the faint-hearted and do seek legal advice, please. Um, now, Jamie, you've also put out earlier in January a 2022 predictions for CDR, and and you, you beautifully hedge by getting experts around the world to share their thoughts. Um out of all the predictions you've heard so far and hopes and aspirations for CDR this year, what do you hope is the one that lands? The one that I hope the most lands is we actually start getting traction through use cases and users. The best thing that could possibly happen for CDR now is to start to have a half a dozen use cases ready and live in the market and to start to see consumers using it and being happy with the experience that it provides. That is the number one hope I have for, for this year. There's a lot of things I hope happen this year around uh, finishing off some of those outstanding items in open banking and trying to solve the digital identity and seeing energy companies lean in and actually start sharing data like this. 2022 is going to be the biggest year for open banking and the CDR in Australia so far. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for taking us through open data, what's happening, what's changed in the last few weeks, where it's heading, and being brave to predict for 2022. Thank you, Jamie Leach, for joining me. Thanks for having me, Brett. That's it. You can go back to work now.